0: The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. I sat down with Representative Karen Bass, Democrat of California, former state senator, physician's assistant, community activist, and the founder of the Community Coalition in LA, which has incubated more than its fair share of activists and future politicians. Bass is an expert on inside-outside organizing. She's also been a kind of unofficial mentor to AOC and the so-called squad. Here's our conversation, recorded January 15th. I don't think we can start really anyplace else but asking you where you were on January 6th. What was your experience of that day and, and how are you?
1: I am doing fine. I, I will tell you that I'm still pretty angry about what happened and uh, just arrived back in Los Angeles from DC. And DC right now, especially at the Capitol, several years ago, I went to Iraq, I was in the green zone in Baghdad. And that's what DC feels like to me right now, just in terms of the Capitol itself, just in terms of the hundreds of soldiers that are there. And As I drove around yesterday, I said, you know, it's not that we were threatened by Al Qaeda, our Al Shabaab, our ISIS, we were threatened by the president of the United States. So I was in the gallery listening to the debate and I got up and walked toward my office uh, for a Zoom call. And I looked out of the window and I was talking to one of the Capitol police and I said, what's going on out there? And he said, well, it looks like they're tearing down the stage that was quite a ways away. Mm. And, uh, and I I said, Oh, and we talked about it for a minute and I walked away, I was extremely fortunate that I made it back to my office, turned on the TV and by the time I got back to my office, they had stormed the very steps I was looking at. Mm. So um, I was not uh, in danger, Uh, I was sheltering in place, did not disclose my location. Um, and watched on TV as the crazy mob tore up the Capitol. And it's still just so shocking, considering you can't even come into the building with a backpack,
0: let alone with weapons, bombs, guns, and, and poles, flag poles. So as you've heard more and learned more about what was actually happening outside and then inside and what might have happened to you and your colleagues, how do you feel that? And how do you process that or begin to?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think the most important thing that needs to happen is a really deep investigation. Because until that happens, and until we're really clear what went on, it's going to be difficult, because many of us feel are are concerned that some of our own colleagues might have participated, participated by, I mean, maybe they didn't know everything that was going to happen, but participated by helping the people do reconnaissance the day before, communicating with them while it was happening. Um, Not sure whether or not Capitol Police were involved. So it's kind of an unsettling environment right now. And I just hope that The investigation happens very quickly.
0: So we're going to get to how we do things. But before we get to how we do things, a subject in which you are an expert, um, what things should we be doing? There's obviously the investigations Mm -hmm. into what happened on January 6th. There are actions to be taken about, you know, uh, with regard to individual actors, bad actors and others. But then there are the systems, conditions, institutions that gave rise to this. How are you setting priorities right now?
1: You're absolutely right. I think the first and foremost thing though is the issue around safety. That's the most important thing. Uh, The fact that there are these extreme right-wing organizations in the country that plan to continue to descend on the Capitol. Uh, One, there's supposed to be a major protest tomorrow and then on Sunday, January 17th, there's supposed to be another protest because the number 17 uh, relates to the letter Q in the alphabet, it's the 17th letter. And so the QAnon folks are supposed to have a big protest and now two of my colleagues are QAnon. I mean, what does all of that mean? So I feel like we just have to get to the transfer of power. I am hopeful that once the uh, general public gets acclimated to a real president, the way a president is supposed to act, the way a commander in chief that is supposed to be concerned about it's their people uh, behaves that maybe things will begin to turn. But I do worry about what the underlying issues are that would lead to all all of the unrest.
0: What are your priorities going into this post-inauguration period?
1: COVID, COVID, COVID. I mean, from all of those crowds, you know that they are going to create another spike in DC. I just got off the phone with a number of my colleagues from California and just found out that a man that I spent Quite a bit of time with yesterday, you know, we were socially distanced, but we were still close, uh, tested positive because, you know, a number of members are popping up positive now because of the protests.
0: So, COVID, 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 looking at the events of January 6th and around that period, Mm -hmm. getting to this question of systems and the conditions that gave rise to the furies that were released that day. On that front, plan of action, you got a lot on your hands. We have to put
1: the country back together again. Very seriously. I mean, domestically and internationally. You know, I I focus on foreign affairs. There's an election going on right now in Uganda. And I just finished issuing a statement calling for the president of Uganda to not arrest people, to be peaceful, to not crack down, to do all of the things that our president is not doing. My statement to the president of Uganda just
0: went out. So we want to tell your story in this conversation as well, because you live at that intersection of movement work, aspiration to radical social change and systems shift and elected office. And it's that that I want you to talk about now, because you're calling for a lot of change in the next few years, but we also, you also understand the importance of getting things done. Right. So, so how do we get things done in this period of, of, of gridlock, polarization, all the rest of it, but simultaneously a period of incredible movement uprising? How do movements and, legisl- and, and electeds like yourself best work together in a moment like this?
1: Well, we absolutely need each other. I mean, the movement is the outside pressure. And in my opinion, the best public po- policy is made on the issues that we care about. The best public policy is made with an inside and an outside strategy. And so most notable for me is uh, I absolutely plan to get back to the business of transforming policing in the United States. And I certainly know that the, act, the outside movement wants much more change than I know is feasible in, in Congress. It's important for them to push and it's important for me to work inside. Uh, believe it or not, in, in times as crazy as this, um, I feel very comfortable in approaching legislation and in working across the aisle. Uh, I know that there's a number of my Republican colleagues that wish he would get off the stage today Uh, But, you know, a number of them continue to vote the way they do for two reasons. One is to preserve their, their political future, but two, now, after Wednesday, it's to preserve their life. So I have Republican colleagues telling me they're afraid to vote another way. Now, I'm used to hearing the fear, but the fear was always related to their political future. Now the fear is related to their life. All of us are going through threats right now. I mean... Most of us have received threats. And uh, so it's a very challenging time. But when you have times like that, that does tend to bring you closer together.
0: Give me a picture of this. I mean, you managed to introduce, when you were chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, one of the most radical pieces of legislation to get a hearing, let alone vote approved in the House. You serve on the House Judiciary Subcommittee on, on Crime and Terrorism. How is this gonna play out in this moment where we have on the outside, people criticizing your act as not being radical enough. And on the inside, a lot of people saying, well, what we saw January 6th just shows why we need more policing and getting tougher on crime. And then I looked at your committee actually, and I thought, gosh, how does she do that? There's Val Demings and Sheila Jackson Lee and all these people of color and women on the democratic side. And then the Republican side is all these white guys. Now, I don't want to typecast anybody here, but I am curious how you get things done.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you could just describe the Republican crop as almost as a whole, so yeah, that's nothing surprising about who's on the subcommittee, but, you know, I, I do believe that this year we're going to um, address domestic terrorism, and that's going to be a dicey one because we really don't have strong domestic terrorism laws, and I will tell you that as much as I want to see laws to deal with the people, the white supremacists that came into the Capitol, I'm always afraid at laws like that, that the minute you put them in place to deal with the white supremacists, they'll find a way to loot black people in. <laughs> yes. they, they
0: have that boomerang effect, right?
1: Exactly, and so um, that's gonna be a very interesting needle to thread. But I actually feel confident on the policing thing. We got a, a lot of Republican support. Now we got three Republican votes, which I do want you to know it was a big deal that we got all the Democratic votes, okay? So the fact that we got three Republican votes was good, but at least 10 to 15 Republicans uh, talked to me afterwards and we engaged in multiple meetings talking about ways that they might be able to support a future bill. So I think that we will be able to uh, get legislation. It will not be enough to satisfy the activists, absolutely. And they will continue to push, and that is exactly what they should do.
0: So again, how can activists be most helpful and least helpful. I mean, I mean we're in a situation for example with respect to Biden Harris where I'm rec- I'm reminded of you know FDR's message to J Philip Randolph you know you got to make me do it even what I've right. promised to do. Right. So there are things that Biden Harris have promised to do which right. we want to see happen progressives do that was never enough and we want to see other things happen. How do we make our critique of the not enough not become a reason to undermine even that little bit of not enough?
1: Well, I mean, I think that it's important to push and to explain why and to explain why how what we're doing is not going to be enough. From our end, it will always be this is a first step, we're not finished, there'll be another step around it. But what does happen a lot is that when the legislation is signed, even with all of the momentum leading up to it and all of the pressure, a lot of times the outside pressure dissipates. So one thing that I would suggest, let's just say we get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed. I would suggest that the activists fight on a local level to make sure it gets implemented, the parts of it that are there, but then to come back and push and say, why, that was good, great first step, now this is what you need. These are the gaps. You passed this bill, but this part of it doesn't work. Because you know, that is often the case. You pass a piece of legislation, but then when you're on the implementation stage, you find weaknesses, you find yeah. strengths and weaknesses, and you always need to come back and, and improve. And when we go back to improve, it'll be an opportunity to see if we can push the envelope further. Now at the same time, you have to educate the public too. You have to bring the masses of people along to understand why what you did was a great first step but you need 10
0: other steps. The reason we're coming to you on this is because you're an expert on inside outside organizing. And we have interviewed um, proteges of yours and mentees of yours. I've written about the um, organizations that you've uh, helped to create. I want you to share some of that story with our audience. I could do it, but I'd rather you did. You didn't get born onto the earth knowing how to do this. And I think when you started many years ago, you can decide when you want to start the story. You could never have imagined, I don't think, never. that you would have seriously been in the running as a vice presidential candidate for the presidency oh, see, in I 2020.
1: Didn't, I didn't even think you were going to say that. I thought you were going to say Congress. So well, I couldn't have even imagined that, let alone the idea that I would be considered as to be a vice president of the United States. No, completely out of my imagination. But, you know, I did spend most of my life working on the outside as an activist, never imagining elected office. But really the the decisive time in my life that changed all that was crack cocaine. And by the way, there is a tremendous documentary on Netflix called Crack that really lays it down. Where and talks about all of it in terms of the uh, move to the right, the laws that laid the foundation for mass incarceration, as well as the CIA involvement. But what I found is, is that the outside strategy was not enough. The communities were falling apart and I felt that my activism was limited and that I had to figure out basic reforms on the inside. Well, there was a time period in my life when reforms were never enough because I wanted transformation today. But you know what? People were dying on the street. I mean, we had a thousand homicides in one year in Los Angeles. And I felt like all of the years I spent as an activist, if I couldn't figure out what to do, then, you know, what was the value I was bringing to the table? Because what was happening from the masses of the people, and this is the part that is not talked about with the crime bill. I didn't like the crime bill in 1994. We fought against it, but I understood why it happened. It happened because people in the community were demanding it. They wanted the military center. They didn't care about their civil liberties because they were trying to survive. And the left and the activists had no answer for them. And so that's when I started Community Coalition because I said, as much as I'd like to see transformation of society, I had to figure out what needed to be done right then that day.
0: So how did you go about it? What made, what were the, what were the distinguishing aspects of the community coalition and what are to this day?
1: Well, first of all, one of the biggest, the the beginning of the coalition was controversial because we were funded by the U.S. government. And during those years, the idea that you would accept any mainstream money, even private philanthropy, let alone the U.S. government was seen as traitorous. But, you know, I, that was the level of desperation that I felt the African-American community was undergoing because remember at the same time we had crack, we also had AIDS and we did not even have the, the cocktail. There was no way to treat AIDS Everybody was just dying. And so um, I, I felt that we had to come up with some practical solutions for people in the community so that they would stop saying, bring us the police. So we spent months going door to door. In the middle of South Central, where all the homicides were taking place, talking to residents about what did they need to see to improve the quality of life. And then we started fighting for drug treatment resources because to us, the crack epidemic was a public health crisis and it was an economic crisis. So people were surviving economically by the drug trade. And people had an addiction and they needed treatment, but when it came to our community, our community was uh, criminalized and incarcerated for health and for an economic issue. And so we mobilized the community together and we began to shift things in terms of policing. We had a real crazy police chief, so that was one of the first things we needed to do was get rid of him. And um, community coalition and collaboration with other organizations, we had to change the city charter in order to get rid of the police chief, which we eventually did. And so, um, you know, it was a long haul, uh, but the issues, not all of the issues is nowhere near uh, as bad as it was then. But a lot of the fundamental issues uh, are still there.
0: I hear so many echoes uh, of our situation today. And we should say that you you are a physician's assistant. When you say the AIDS epidemic, you were in there. Working in the hospitals, I understand it.
1: I was taking care of the people and watching them die, and um, and we didn't know how it was spread. And by the way, we didn't even wear gloves then. I mean, that's right. not you know that 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 came in later. So I have tremendous empathy for the uh, workforce that's dealing with COVID right now and their personal uh, protection.
0: So it's no secret, I don't think, that you've been kind of a mentor to many members of the squad, leading as you did in a certain kind of way, this um, flow, I think, of of community activists going into government. A lot of them women of color, and I don't think that's an accident, I'd love you to talk to that. Well, what's your advice to them in this moment, as they also deal with a pandemic, a policing crisis, a racism crisis, white supremacy, and the many, many pressures that they're on today that in some ways are even greater because of the shrunken amount of time it takes for a story to go from my lips to the universe.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when the community coalition started, the internet was barely being born. <laughs> we didn't even have personal computers; laptops didn't exist. Right. Cell phones were barely coming into uh, existence. My my biggest concern about the young members of Congress who identify with the Squad is their health and their well-being and making sure that they can stay for the long haul whether they stay in office or not but stay as activists committed to social change i don't want to see them burn out and i obviously don't want to see any physical harm come and getting them to understand how to work in a legislative body because you can be very well known liked loved a celebrity on social media But at the same time, you have to get 218 people to vote for your legislation. And so the other thing is to understand, especially in the world of social media, your tweet impacts the legislative body. It's making the change from an individual to being part of a collective. The difference, the the generational difference is, is that the way we went about our political work back in the day, we were very, very collective-oriented. We were uh, anti-individual. And so they're coming from an exact opposite culture because social media promotes an individual culture as opposed to a collective culture. So getting people to understand that the power of the tweet can
0: impact every member of Congress and it's not just your own individual opinion. Does the same hold true for activists on the outside? If they really want you to be successful on the inside are there things they should think before they
1: tweet? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think one of the things right now that's going to be very important is to distinguish our movement from the racist revolt insurrection that took place last week and that was the violence. And so I think in our future protests to make sure that they are as peaceful as possible and also to isolate anybody that is creating violence. Now, one of the things that I've been concerned about, uh, about the protests around the country, when I see some of the looting and some of the violence, uh, to me, I don't automatically assume it's the people involved in the protest at all. I I know that uh, protests back in the day, we called them agent provocateurs and it was actually the police that were involved in the violence. Now it's right wing organizations that I know have come into some of those uh, protests. The other thing is, is that for uh, the Black Lives Matter protests in many cities like Portland, for example, where there are very few black people involved. They're mainly allies. For people to understand that as an ally, when you are involved in looting and violence, black people get blamed because you're holding up a sign that says black lives matter. It doesn't matter that you're white. (laughs) Black people still get blamed for it. And so a true ally is not gonna do that because it absolutely compromises the movement. And all you have to do is watch that crazy network to know that the way they are talking about the insurrection that took place last, last week, they're comparing it to Minnesota and Portland and other cities. There's nothing comparable. <laughs> but we But we wanna make sure we draw a hard line.
0: Are you concerned that Donald Trump has increasingly started referring to his movement? You know, oh, I,
1: I am in one sense, but in another sense, you know, uh, I don't think he cares a lick about those people that support him, not a lick. I think it's important for us to convict him in the Senate so that he can never run for office again, because the whole point of his movement is to get back in office. Uh, otherwise, what, what are you talking about? If we take his ability away to run for office, then he won't be able to, at least I think, I mean, he might come up with another way, but basically he's stealing from these people. I mean, you know, he's telling them to give him money so that he can challenge the election. I don't know if he's still doing that, but anyway, he was and 75% of every dollar was going to him and wasn't going to the, to the cause. It's just so sad. I, I, I attended a focus group last night uh, anonymously of Trump supporters for a couple of hours and to listen to them talk, they don't even believe last week happened. Mm -hmm. They said that last week was Black Lives Matter and Antifa dressed as Trump supporters, that Trump supporters never attacked police, that they would never do that. So that's not who it was. That's not what happened. And why are we making such a big deal out of it? It was one protest, whereas there were hundreds of Black Lives Matter protests where there was all kinds of violence. I mean, you're talking about folks that are operating in a different universe. Well,
0: it sounds like there's a lesson there for the media too. Well, I mean I, I, I mean, I don't
1: think there's the responsibility there from the media at all. I mean, the fact that you could have a major network that is telling people that COVID is not that bad and 300,000 people didn't die, neither did we land on the moon. I mean, you know, it, it, it's just amazing that a, a mainstream network would actually put out information that could lead to people's completely compromising their health. I have colleagues, congressional colleagues that are taking hydroxychloroquine to prevent COVID.
0: You talked about COVID. We've talked about the politics a little bit. Let's talk about economics just for a moment. And then I want to come back to the personal. I think one of the agendas that we have is to be clearer in the media or I myself on my own show that Our level of economic inequality is a public health threat. I think that we're getting at the environmental justice is is part of our justice, our environmental movement. Clearly our public health movement has to deal with economic inequality. The obvious question is the stimulus package enough? B, what else is needed and how do we advance that?
1: Well, first of all, I I would add race into the public health uh, situation. Of course. Because that uh, separate from economics um, you know, you have disproportionate health statistics amongst communities of color, regardless of socioeconomic status. Yeah. And uh, of course, that's all accentuated um, with, with COVID. So I, I would say that um, in the economic stimulus package, people need money. They need money and they need it to be consistent. So it's great to have a $2,000 check one time that pays some bills that you know, maybe stops you from being evicted for one month, but people need ongoing economic support. One thing that I I truly believe about uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris is that they are gonna pull out all stops. This is the United States of America, the richest country in the history of the planet. We have tons of resources. What what, uh, Trump did in his denial and also just in his ideological uh, viewpoint is he took a public health issue and he turned it over to the free market and basically said, you know, capitalists, figure it out. And, and then he uh, decentralized uh, health and politicized it. So there has not been a national strategy. There was no reason for these many people who died. I believe that President Biden and Vice President Harris will involve the military. And that's, we need military involvement in COVID.
0: But we have allowed our health system to be in the hands of private corporations and run for profit for decades. And your experience on the Subcommittee on Africa and Health, you know what that has meant for people around the world.
1: No, no, I do, but I I do think had there been, even though we have put our health system out for profit, we monetized healthcare, which, you know, we could debate that, and I, I have a problem with that. Uh, but I do think other leaders would not have monetized a yeah. pandemic, and that's what he did. And, you know, when the investigation is done on COVID, oh, my God, the corruption we're going to find yeah. where people were given contracts that had no experience, no big contracts. I mean, how do you give a contract to Kodak? for young people might not even remember Kodak. It's a company that doesn't even make sense anymore because we don't take pictures the way we did before, but you're gonna give them a biotech contract.
0: A it movie. reminds me of the billions of dollars that we still don't know where they went in Iraq. And and you mentioned the Iraq war earlier, um, billions lost under that administration too. Coming back to that sort of throwaway line about who is leading the charge as it were, from the front lines of movement to elected office and how it just so happens, it seems as if women of color are the forefront of that. It's not just a coincidence in my view, um, or is it? What do you think? Why is that the case?
1: Well, I mean, I think that leading women of color are being acknowledged for leading
0: the day. I mean, specifically the, coming, the ones who seem to be coming from movement and, and moving into elected office the cutting edge of that seems to be disproportionately women of color. Yes,
1: but I, I do think that we have the emerging populations and emerging leadership that now is being organized. And I also think as a movement, we've reached a level of sophistication where we're running for office and winning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I remember before we used to run just to make a point. <laughs> right. And, and re- we actually have positions of power now. My problem, my beef is, is that we don't necessarily know what to do with it. (laughs) And I don't think in terms of the inside outside strategy, I don't think the movement activists have learned how to use the power that we have. I don't think they strategically use the relationships. So those of us that are in elected office, uh, we could have a much more strategic relationship with the outside than we do. Everybody's busy, so if it's not thought about consciously, it doesn't just happen. Uh, You know, for example, when I was in the state legislature and I was Speaker of the House in the catbird seat, I'd see activists come up and protest or have uh, meetings uh, in in the Capitol. And I would say to them when I'd see them walking down the hall, hey, why didn't you call me? Why didn't you tell me you were coming? We could have sat down and planned it all out. I could have told you who not to waste your time with, who to talk to. I could have made sure you had meetings. I could have done all this. So my power that I had wasn't even utilized and people didn't even think. It was like, oh yeah, that's right. You got that job.
0: (laughs) So listen up people, use your electives, have a relationship with them. We end the show every week or most weeks, um, Congresswoman, by asking people what they think the story will be that the future tells of this moment and you can kind of pick whatever future you want. What is your sense of, of the moment we're living in?
1: You know, it's very hard for me uh, as an African-American to not see this moment through a racial, racial lens and really the last four or five years. The fact that a segment of our population was so traumatized by that black family that lived in the White House for eight years yeah. That they, were, they resorted to um, um, four years of a white supremacist in the Oval Office and a resurgence of a white supremacist movement. And that there is a section, a sector of our country that is deathly afraid of the change in demographics so much, so much, that they would turn over their country to somebody who was clearly unstable from day one, pathologically narcissistic. And, uh, and I, I feel for all of those followers of the cult that he has proven over and over again, doesn't care about them. He's even on, you know, I mean, people who have worked with him, just wait the stories that are gonna emerge now that Pete, now, now that he's out of power. Um, and so it's hard for me to not view this moment from that lens. Now that's the negative. The positive is I'm tremendously hopeful and all of the emerging activists, I look at the movements and say, ah, people like me will be able to retire. <laughs> because there's a tremendous wave coming along. And to me, if you're truly committed to social and economic justice, then you're deeply concerned about who's coming after. And, and my focus, I want the next iteration of my life to be devoted to uh, doing everything I can to nurture the next generation, because you realize that the movement never ends. Um, it's a, a, a lifelong forever struggle. And so you always have to make sure that there's troops ready to carry on.
0: Well, I know you have both mentored many troops and that you have many years still to go. So we look forward to talking to you again and really, really appreciate your time today, Congressman. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.